Bay's Tan Talk. Entertaining and informative radio for the Sunshine State. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends Corey, Jed, and Kurt at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. You maybe owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727 541 1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years' experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car's been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727 541 1741. You maybe owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Is everybody in? Everybody in. The ceremony is about to begin. Bobby Krieger, guitar player. John Densmore, percussionist, 22 years old. Far out. Uh, Pamela Morrison, ornament. Raymond Daniel Manzarek, 121239. Name, occupation? Uh, Jim. You know the day destroys the night. Night divides the Sides are being chosen. The planet is screaming for change, Morrison. We gotta make the myths. The Indians say the first shaman invented sex. They call him the one who makes you crazy. The God of Rock. The guys at Network have told us that they have a little problem with the lyric, Girl, we couldn't get much higher. They asked if you could say instead, Girl, we can't get much better. Can you dig that? Girl, we couldn't get much higher. I love it when you sing to me. I'm the poet and you're my muse. Do you hear them out there? Do you they want now? Try drinking blood. Mr. Morrison, you've gone too far. You're a poet, not a rock star. What you gonna do for act three? Let's just say I was testing the bounds of reality. And now, direct from Los Angeles, California, ladies and gentlemen, here now, the door. There's a really big shoe tonight. A really big shoe tonight. Yes, sir, we've really got a spectacle for you this time. Hi, this is Nick Mason from Pink Floyd, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Welcome, you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google Tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in sparkling downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us and what we do. 
And don't forget to check out our archive page, Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We can find out all the information about this radio show and our past shows. Good evening, Bobby. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. That's the place to go, I would say. Yeah. So would you like to do these social media honors? One of these days I'll get this down so then I can do it, but you're better at it Repeat after me. Facebook. Facebook. Repeat after me. Okay. I like that. Good. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, Periscope. And all of the means at Instagram at Nostalgic Radio and Cars at NRC on air and Instagram is at Gulfstream Motorsports. Yeah, you know what? We have over 400 Twitter followers and we have over 400 and some odd Facebook followers on uh, Nostalgic and 120 something on Gulfstream. So we're actually doing pretty good as far as honest, organic followers that we generated via our social media efforts. So. I'm pleased with that. You know, you see a lot of guys that got thousands, and you don't know whether they got them for real. Now, granted, there are some companies that, you know, they've got thousands and tens of thousands and millions of followers, but yeah, ours are we real. substitute those for radio listeners. That's true. That's true. Because in the Tampa Bay area, we have 3.5 million people that uh, are grasping for the radio knobs right now, and their AM radios and their vintage American or European cars. Hey guys, we got a great show for you tonight. We had a really big show tonight. Uh, the big event that's coming up, since there's not a lot of car stuff going on other than the local stuff anymore, and if you want to find out about a lot of the local car shows, be sure to check out flacarshows.com. Did I say it right this time, Bobby? Yes. Yes. Tara Bush, who owns, operates uh, Florida, or flacarshows.com. FL or FLA? She's, she's FLA. Jumping. FLA. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Uh, see, my memory's so short. Anyway, she's going to be coming on because she just got back from the power tour here, so she'll be coming back, uh, coming on our show here in next couple of weeks and telling us a little bit about that, but uh, she can definitely uh, hook you up with all the cool car shows going on in West Florida, Central Florida, South Florida, North Florida, all over Florida, anyway. And guess what? All of Florida. All of Florida. How about that? Yeah. So anyway, but, 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 if you want to find out where all the cool, big, 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 important shows are, you visit our events page on GolfstreamMotorsports.com and you will find out that in two weeks, we have the NAM show taking place in Music City. No, what's uh, what's the other name? What's the other name for uh, Nashville, Bobby? Is it Music City? Mm, Nashville. Yeah, Nashville, Tennessee. I mean, that's uh, home of country music. Don't know or about mu- Nashville. Wait a minute, Manf- where are we going? It's Nashville, right? Nashville. Yeah. Nashville, Tennessee. NAM. Okay, NAM is National Association of Music Merchants, correct? Yes. And they have two big Although shows. You'll probably never hear it that way. But you'll so never hear it that way. Okay. Well, anyway, so the NAM show is coming up, and so that's why we did a little uh, the Doors at the beginning. Of course, the, we are probably the number one Doors fans here because we that's my favorite band out of the '60s. I like the Beatles, but I like the Doors better. <laughs> Yep, but probably get the award on this station for the yeah. most doors ever played. <laughs> That's true. On That's one, true. Probably on one radio station in Tampa Bay. Yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, so uh, we're going to be, we're going to have a guest come on. We're going to have two guests coming on. We're going to have one gentleman is going to be a musical instrument kind of guy. And our second guest in the bottom half of the hour is a car designer, a very prominent car designer with General Motors, General Motors Cadillac division, in fact, and special vehicles. So that's what we got Line up for you guys this evening. Now, Bobby, I think you got something queued up on the Redidio here or on the uh, turn-up table. But uh, no major car shows going on other than what we have. Like, for example, the big show is going to be Monterey Collector Car Week coming up. Porsche Parade is uh, also in a couple weeks. And let's see. Then we got uh, the... Uh, oh, now here's a band we don't play very often. And you don't really hear much about them. But they were a big band out of the 60s and 70s, even through the 80s. Out of England, and it's called, the name of the band is Yes. And Roundabout was their number one song at one point in time, but uh, this one is called what, Bobby? This is the South Side of the Sky. The South Side of the Sky. And okay. yes, you should stay tuned in. Yes, you should stay tuned in to Nostalgic Freedom Cards. Don't touch that doll. We'll be right back.
Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kurt, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Hi, this is Tim Del Toro. And I'm Lou Angel Wolf, and we are the Grease Gurus. Our show is broadcast every Saturday morning live at WTAN 10 Talk Radio 1340. That's 10 o'clock every Saturday morning for an automotive forum that is flavored with humor and insight. We encourage you to call in and be part of the Grease Gurus show. We'd love to have you, and we will certainly help you find your inner grease. This show is sponsored by Tim's Performance Service Center in beautiful Tarpon Springs at 906 Verona Place, and you can reach us personally at 727-543-1601. Aha. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car's been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Okay, we're back, and I believe we have our first special guest on the line. Now, we uh, are fairly active when it comes to music, vintage musical instruments, guitars, and all that kind of stuff. We talked a little bit about uh, Nam. Well, the gentleman I got coming on right now is also a very, I'm going to say he's an astute musician, but not only that, he actually builds his own guitars. Now, he builds bass guitars, but among the bass community they refer to him as bases but anyway i am going to let him explain that to you because i'm delighted to welcome to the show this afternoon jake sarek jake are you there yes i'm here i'm feeling nostalgic already what's up man <laughs> that's good that's good did i pronounce your name right uh sarek sarek okay. like, right. like spock's father from star trek oh okay yeah that's one way to remember that's yeah <laughs> so it's actually a Pol- it's a polish name and it, it means cheese so that's another uh interesting tidbit too okay well that's always cool when they have uh you know other meanings besides just one or two so tell us a little bit about yourself jake you're young yeah you're very young yeah i turned 30 this year uh cinco de mayo 30th birthdays no way uh, you, is your birthday may 5th may 5th yep so is my son the guy you just talked to that took your phone call that's yeah. it is. <laughs> how about that well happy birthday awesome. to you yeah thank you it's a, it's a good birthday to have lots of tequila shots you know? <laughs> now are, are is a 30 year old still considered a millennial you know, that's a good question. I think it depends on how much you use your phone. Really. <laughs> <laughs> how much and, you act uh, like one. <laughs> I, guess. I think I probably am guilty of being a little bit of a millennial. Yeah, okay, sure. well, that's cool, though. There's nothing wrong with that. That's nothing wrong with it. Actually, you're a pretty uh, accomplished millennial. So tell us a little bit about uh, your musical past, because from what I understand, you've opened up for some pretty uh, significant bands in uh, a short period of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in uh, the, like, around 20, it was like 2008 to 2011, I was in this band called Bad City here in Chicago, um, and it was made up of a bunch of guys who grew up in, you know, in the Chicagoland area, guys that I had gone to high school with and had known for a long time, and we recorded a record that got put out on Atlantic Records, uh, produced by Johnny Kay, who is a a Grammy-nominated producer who's worked with a lot of great bands like Megadeth and Disturbed and some kind of like heavier rock stuff. Um, and so we were, we had this record, and we're like, all right, well, we got to go out on tour. Who do we want to tour with? So the first thing that we all agreed on was that we all loved the Smashing Pumpkins, the Chicago band. We loved their music. It would be awesome if we could go out with them. And they had, had a tour coming up that summer. So we wrote a letter to Billy Corgan, and... He responded, and sure enough, he took us out on the road. So that was our kind of our first tour out of the gate with that band, which is a great way to start things off. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, and then from there, it just kind of it spiraled on. We went uh, out with Slash for a tour um, with his band. That was amazing. Our and Slash from Guns N' Roses? Slash from Guns N' Roses, that's uh-huh. right. Yeah, he was, he was a really nice guy. That was a great tour. And uh, we ended up kind of finishing off with uh, a small arena tour with Kiss. Oh, which wow. Was kind of, <laughs> which was a bit of a life-changing uh, experience. Another really influential band for all of us, so... Yeah, we had a crazy couple of years, um, and it was a yeah. You know, back going going a little bit further back, I was kind of that that band nerd growing up. I was the guy playing trumpet and tuba in the marching band and all that kind of stuff. And then towards the end of high school, I picked up the bass and had a couple garage bands with my buddies, and it just kind of worked its way up from there. So, where did the name Axe come from? You know, a lot of guys will say, "Oh yeah, yeah, check out his Axe," you know, which is a nickname for guitar. So where'd that originate? You know. That's a, that's a good question. I don't know the origin. I do know that Gene Simmons played a bass that was shaped like an axe. Right. Uh, I don't I don't know if that came first or if he did that to be uh, sort of ironic, but I, I don't know for sure. It's a good question. Now, interesting. Okay, so you're a bass player, okay? And yeah. uh, so when you played for these, when you fronted for some of these bands, did you get a chance to play with any of the band members? Did they allow you to get on stage and kind of jam with them? Specifically yeah, Gene Simmons, know, since he is a bass guitarist? Yeah, actually, I got to stand in for Gene Simmons at a sound check uh, for, with Kiss because he was filming an episode of The Family Jewels backstage and couldn't make their sound check. So we would always be, you know, we were we were kind of nerding out. We would sit in the front row and watch their sound check, and Paul Stanley would be flicking his picks at us and stuff like that. And they were kind of standing around. Gene wasn't showing up, so he's like, "Hey, you're the bass player, right? You know, for the other band." I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "Get up here." So. I got to go up and play a few Kiss songs, and we jammed a little Zeppelin and Who. It was pretty surreal. I, I honestly, I think I blacked out. I don't remember much of it, but pictures. <laughs> Super opportunity. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was great. It was great. I'll always remember that. So. Well, now tell us about your guitars. Tell us about the Sarek. Did I pronounce it right? Sarek uh, yeah, bass. Yeah, Sarek bass. So, you know, all, one thing I'll say is that all of these, tours and all of that kind of professional uh, playing experience kind of informed a lot of what I do in terms of just making a quality instrument that I know will be able to stand up to the rigors of touring and that kind of stuff. But I'm, I'm a vintage influence guy. I like older basses from the 60s and 70s. I like uh, Rickenbackers, old Guild, Gibsons, stuff like that. So I drew kind of my aesthetic influence from those, from those bass designs, but then I tried to bring a bring a more modern functionality to them. I guess you could say, you know, better playability, uh, more modern kind of tones and electronics, things like that. So just to bring them up into the the twenty first century. So well, what's interesting is I like your uh, your uh, pick guard. Gives me reminds me a little bit of a Gibson SG. You know, the uh, the the bat wing look to it. And yeah, then, yeah. And then yep. on your on your headstock. Uh, to cover your truss rod, you've got uh, mm-hmm. that plastic piece that's engraved Sarek, and then uh, it reminds me of a Rickenbacker. So exactly. I dig, I dig the vintage uh, theme to it. Yeah, you nailed it. That's you know that's kind of a combination of those two things right there. That's the uh, Midwestern bass. So and I uh, I specialize in short scale basses too. I do a lot of those. I do some chambered body designs, um, all, all different stuff. But I like to. I like to focus on on like the natural look too. I do a lot of just raw wood with oil finishes, real natural sounding and feeling instruments. Um, you know, I think a lot of bass players are kind of grounded in that way. They just like kind of the earthy look of the instrument, and, you know, more in tune with it. So now, tell us a little bit about the woods and you know the electronics is pretty, you know, th- that's kind of an ear thing. But tell us about the woods and how wood affects tone. Yeah, there's there's a lot of debates about that. There's a forum online called Talkbased, and you could get lost for days looking through threads about people arguing about what wood sounds like this or that or the other. Honestly, I stick to pretty basic stuff. I use maple, mahogany, and walnut. Those are kind of three pillars of tone wood, I guess you could say. And at the end of the day, the tone really comes from how heavy the instrument ends up and how thick or thin you carve the neck. That that I've found in my experience building instruments for the past 10 years is really what will shape the sound of the instrument aside from all the other stuff. It's just the carve of the neck and then how the final weight of the instrument. 
especially for basses, it's just the, the, the way that the instrument really uh, has subtle influences on the low-end frequencies. So. Now, now, when they use the term, sometimes a guitar is neck-heavy, what's happening there? What's taking place? Yeah, that's that's actually more common with basses than anything. It's mm-hmm. just the, the the center of balance on the instrument is shifted towards the headstock, so that the when you have it just hanging on a on a strap or sitting in your lap, the headstock wants to dive towards the floor. So that's something that I completely avoid in all of my designs. They all, you know, make sure that they all balance perfectly, sitting or standing up. That's really important. A lot of you know, there's no reason that you should have to hold up your instrument with your left arm all night long, you know, fatiguing you like that, so. Okay. Um, now, NAM is coming up, which is the National Association mm-hmm. of Music Merchants. This is your first go at it with your own yep. special brand. So I know you've never been there. I've never been there. But what I'd like to do is just maybe for a second, because we've got a few minutes left, is share what you anticipate there. And then what we'll do is, you know, if we both get out there, you will for sure. If I can get out there, I will. And then yeah. uh, we'll talk about it. We'll have you come on afterwards, and let's just we'll, we'll make some comparisons. So tell us what you, your expectations are at NAM and what you know right. about yeah. it. Yeah, the key is just exposure. I just I I know that the show isn't really meant to just go and sell what you're bringing, but it's meant to just make the connections with all the other people in the industry. And I'm going specifically to try and meet other dealers from around the country. Um, I've, I've had a lot of luck with direct sales, but I want to try and get some of my base out into different boutique shops all around the country. And I know a lot of these guys come to the show to check out the new gear and, you know, consign new stuff. I, I have a lot of people reaching out to me from the East and West coast saying, Hey, I would love to buy a base, but I want to try it first. Where can I try one out? So I'm trying to get places like that where I can direct these people to a physical location where they can actually get their hands on an instrument. And then just to make connections with other builders and, and like-minded folks, you know, that you can just pass along some wisdom and share some good tips and things like that. You know, it's just a good community. So Super. hopefully we can, you know, everyone likes to help each other out. So, How many guitars do you build a year? Uh, this year I'm on track to do at least 50. Last year was kind of my first year really doing this uh full-time i did about 25 or so mm-hmm. but i was still part-timing another job so this year i'm all in 100 percent, and I'm, I'm shooting for at least 50 how long does it take you to build a guitar uh, or base finish yeah i can have the base built like all the woodworking aspect of it i can have it built in about two weeks or so depending on the instrument um but it takes a little bit longer to do the finish work and, and the final assembly and setup so all in all about a month or so okay. for a total instrument. Now, Jake, if people want to find out more about you and your guitars, where do they go? I've got a website, sericbases.com, S-E-R-E-K, bases.com, and then uh, I've got a Facebook page, of course, and uh, an Instagram account where I post pictures pretty much daily of new instruments that I'm working on and just progress reports at the shop and things like that. Would it be fair to say that most people that build instruments, such as yourself, are actually musicians and they kind of know, they got a feel for it? That's not always the case. You know, that's definitely not always the case. And I think sometimes it's an advantage if you're not because you could bring some other element to the table, maybe like, you know, a more engineering type aspect or something. But at the end of the day, I think it is important that, you know, if you're building something for a specific purpose, you should kind of know how it's going to perform to that end. So I think that is really valuable to me that I have been a professional musician for so long. I play my own instruments on stage still. You know, I'm in two bands here in Chicago. So I, I get to kind of test drive them all and everything. So it is important to, you know, have that experience. Excellent. Well, Jake, one more time. Give out the uh, your uh, social media and your contact information. Yeah, Instagram is just uh, Steric Bases, and then the website is SericBases.com. Pretty simple stuff. If you just do a Google search, you'll find it all. Okay. Well, Jake, hey, I want to thank you very much for taking some time out here with us at Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I look forward to seeing you and meeting you at NAM. And if yeah, you ever get to yeah. Florida, definitely uh, look us up. All right. Thanks again. All right. Take care. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, right, I'm going to thank my special guest, Jake Sarek, with uh, Sarek Bases. So, hey, don't touch that dial. We will be right back. I think we got a little music and another special guest coming on this show this evening.
1946, Preston Tucker and his family began to build the car of the future. Today. Explain first about the dogs. Well, I uh, traded the old Packer for them. They would challenge the automotive giants in Detroit. Is there anybody in this room who can look me in the eye and tell me we can't do it? Building a car in your barn is one thing, but mass production, that's something else. It's the idea that counts in the dream. It was almost too good to be true. Detroit, they're putting the squeeze on. We can't buy steel, we can't buy anything. So, I made an appointment with Senator Ferguson. Oh, what do you think? A big smile and a pat on the back is gonna make him forget he's a senator from Detroit? What an idea of yours, selling dealerships for cars that don't exist. What'd he say? He said stay out of the car business. Tucker built the thing. Well, not everything he advertised, not yet, but enough right now to cost billions just to keep up with him. You don't understand how powerful the forces are that are working against us here. Ever since you road tested the new car, 40 g men have been following you around the clock. What for? To make the car too good. Ah, well, don't worry about it now. I'll take care of it. Hey, Mr. Tucker, we're from the Securities and Exchange Commission. We shall prove the only thing Mr. Tucker designed was an elaborate scheme to defraud. Why would they do something so stupid like that if they know we can prove it's a lie? But if enough headlines say that I'm a crook, well, that's the end of me in the car, which is what this whole thing's all about, isn't it? If you're not careful, you're going to spend the next 20 years of your life in prison. And we are going to build that car, the one we dreamed of, exactly the one we wanted. Paramount Pictures presents a Lucasfilm production of a Francis Coppola film. The big business closes the door, and the little guy with a new idea, we're sabotaging everything that the country stands for. If they can make headlines with lies, we can make bigger headlines with the truth. He is dead. Hold the tiger! Jeff Bridges is Tucker. The true story of one man and his dream. Hi, I'm Bob Lutz, former vice chairman of General Motors, and I like listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars at Semper Fi. Okay, we're back, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and it's time to introduce our next guest. Speaking of General Motors, this gentleman is the retired director of design for Cadillac and Special Vehicles under the General Motors badge. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, Kip Wasenko. Kip, are you there? I am here. Good to be here. Yes, we've been talking about this for years. I see you all over the country at uh, some of the most major events, Monterey, Scottsdale. Yeah, I, think, I, think we, I think we saw each other uh, at Scottsdale, at Barrett-Jackson. We've yes. seen each other at Amelia. All the car cool, all the cool car shows, we seem to bump into each other. Absolutely. Well, Kip, why don't you give us a little background on yourself? Tell us a little bit about uh, Kip Wasenko and being the director of design for Cadillac and some of the cool stuff you did while you were there. Well, I started uh, General Motors in uh, 1969. I was actually in the summer program, of uh, summer intern program in 68. And, uh, my portfolio uh, was good enough, so I got hired in when I graduated in 1969. Uh, had a lot of different assignments. Uh, I think early in my career, uh, the first car that I was actually given a, uh, a patent on was a was an experimental vehicle. Uh, General Motors was uh, looking at doing the rotary engine, the Vonco, and they had um, they had the rights from Curtis Wright Company. So we did a mid-engine sports car, uh, two-passenger sports car, which was really meant to be an alternative to the Corvette, more along the lines. It was rotary-powered, but it was along the size and the philosophy of a Dino 246 or a Porsche 911, as opposed to the traditional front-engine uh, V8-powered Corvette. Uh, that car made its debut at the Frankfurt Auto Show in 1973, and I happened to be on assignment at Opal uh, for nine months. So I was able to get up on the stand and uh, talk to the press about it. It was, it was an exciting time for me because I'd only been at GM uh, for four years at that point. Uh, so that was a real kind of a milestone in in my career at that point. Uh, when I came back from Germany, I then went to Australia. I was uh, assistant director of design of uh, the General Motors Holden Division, which, of course, was uh, GM's um, uh, manufacturing, design, and engineering, uh, which was done in Melbourne, Australia. 
the Holdens uh, at that time were uh, really, in Australia, it was really a Ford versus Holdens or Ford versus the General, uh, because both Ford and Holdens were being produced uh, and designed and engineered in Australia. So that was a pretty good opportunity for me. I was there uh, for three years. Uh, while I was at Opal, prior to that, I'd worked on the new Commodore. And then uh, when I went to Australia, they were adopting the Commodore uh, for Australia. But uh, as a lot of people know who have been there, the driving conditions, the road conditions are so dramatically different uh, than in Europe or the United States with a lot of guys taking their cars to the outback. It really had to be re-engineered, but it was fun because I was involved not only uh, with with the Holden products, but I was very heavily involved uh, with the Holden dealer race team. Uh, Ford versus uh, Holden or, uh, was, was big on the racetrack as well, and the touring car championships uh, down there were equivalent to our NASCAR, although it was road racing, but it was followed uh, by the Australian enthusiasts the way NASCAR was back in that day. So I got my first taste of, uh, of, of really being involved with race cars uh, and race teams. And then that, of course, uh, picked up later in my career. Uh, I had several different assignments. I think I was advanced Buick, and uh, I got a chance to do a pretty wild mid-engine uh, it was actually a PPG pace car, and Buick was racing in the IndyCar series at that time with the uh, 3.8-liter V6. And uh, PPG was the sponsor of the IndyCar series, and they had programs where the manufacturers would do custom, customized uh, pace cars. Well, we took it to an all-new level because we built literally a mid-engine pace car called the Buick Wildcat, uh, it had an Indy Buick engine, and the good news was PPG paid for it. So that was kind of a second highlight uh, of my career. Uh, and at the same time, I was running the advanced uh, Buick studio, so we did the productionizing of the uh, Buick Riata and tried to incorporate some of the styling cues uh, into the lights, the tail lamps, and maybe the shape of the upper on the Buick Wildcat. Uh, after that, GM decided to uh, take on the imports, and they formed an all-new division uh, called Saturn, and I was uh, chosen to be the chief designer of the newly formed Saturn Corporation. And that was an interesting assignment because now I, I really got a chance to, you know, GM, of course, was doing a lot of market research at that time with some of the import buyers to try to understand uh, what it takes to appeal to an import buyer. Uh, the other thing that was kind of interesting about Saturn, they really reached out and, and they, they handpicked a lot of real high potential people in manufacturing, engineering. Uh, I was able to do the same thing uh, with the design studio that I formed. I got a chance to pick kind of the dream team, if you will. And, um, but it was interesting. It was it was a cultural difference, uh, as well as a, a new approach to designing and manufacturing cars. I think uh, Saturn probably wrote the textbook on how to deal uh, with the customer and treat the customer with respect. And um, fortunately, most of the buyers uh, from the original Saturns were uh, were import buyers that didn't ever consider a General Motors product. Now, uh, there were some challenges with that because anytime there's a new division uh, within General Motors, Saturn was somewhat closely aligned to GM, although certainly enjoyed some autonomy. Uh, it wasn't real popular with Chevrolet. I think Chevrolet felt that uh, Saturn was encroaching on uh, maybe their market, even though all the research indicated that the typical Saturn buyer, the import buyer, didn't have Chevrolet on its uh, on his radar, uh, it, it created a lot of issues. And uh, I think the corporation uh, was kind of torn, you know, Chevy being the big 
breadwinner, if you will, for General Motors and this new kid in town called Saturn uh, caused some problems. And uh, unfortunately, Saturn uh, did go by the wayside. But because of all my experience with Saturn, uh, John Rock, who was in charge of Oldsmobile at the time, wanted to redirect Oldsmobile towards the import buyers. So they brought me over to Oldsmobile, and uh, I designed the Alero, which I was proud to say uh, a lot of the buyers of the Oldsmobile Alero were new to General Motors, new to Oldsmobile. And I think, you know, it, it accomplished uh, what it was supposed to do. We had, of course, uh, the new products, the old Aurora, which to this day is probably one of the wildest four-door sedans ever done. It almost like a four-door 928 <laughs> Porsche. Uh, the Oldsmobile Intrigue, which was, a, I'll call it a baby version of the Aurora, and the Alero. But unfortunately... General Motors felt at that time that while Oldsmobile was being very successful, they, they probably needed to pare down the number of divisions. And, and I got a phone call. It was this Christmas of 1997. Come in and see Wayne Cherry, who was my boss. He was the vice president of design for General Motors at the time. And he told me he had a special project that he wanted me to work on, and that was to do a concept car for Cadillac. And I said, well, gee, Wayne, I'm in Oldsmobile. How are we going to handle this? And he said, I'll take care of that. Well, Mr. Rock and the Oldsmobile team was not very pleased that I was doing this concept car for Cadillac, but little did I know that the big plans were that Oldsmobile was going to kind of go by the wayside, and uh, which which really disappointed me completely because again I think the Oldsmobiles uh, at that time, according to the magazines, were saying these considerably could be considered the best mid-sized cars in General Motors. So they were receiving a claim by the motoring press, car driver, Motor Trend. Uh, we were setting new sales uh, objectives. And, and appealing to new non-GM people, but I think the powers to be at General Motors felt that we had far too many brands. So that took me to Cadillac, and that's probably, I would say, the high point of my career. Uh, the car that, that the concept car that Wayne asked me to do was initially supposed to be uh, for Pebble Beach, and you know, when I asked him, I said, well, what can I do? He says, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I really want to do a two-passenger Cadillac because I remember when I was the assistant chief designer in Cadillac and Wayne Cady was the chief, we were in competition with Pin and Farina uh, on the Elante, but General Motors decided to have Pin and Farina do the Elante. Well, as you can imagine, it crushed our egos like, aren't we good enough? <laughs> so when I was given a chance now as chief designer, I, I said to Wayne, I really want to do a two-passenger Cadillac, but I want it to be more of a serious car. I don't want it to be an Elante alternative. I want it to be a serious uh, performance car because one of the projects that I did while I was in the advanced area was really, where would you take Cadillac? And and I think that's probably the reason they put me in Cadillac, because when I did my study of Cadillac, it looked to me like all the Cadillacs were appealing to this very same person. And I tried to show that there's a new generation of buyers out there that were interested in performance. They really weren't interested in country club barges, if you will. Uh, they were interested <laughs> in riding handling. They were interested in performance. And as I showed, the brands that I felt we should be competing against, like BMW, well, they're performance driving cars, and they race. Mercedes, they're performance cars, driving cars, and they race. Uh, Porsche, to a certain degree. And so I was able to convinced them that this concept car should be built off what I thought to be one of the best chassis, and that was the Corvette. So the Evoque 
was the concept car that made its debut uh, at the 1999 Detroit Auto Show. It was built on the new upcoming C6 chassis, although it made its debut before the C6 Corvette came out. And it had the new styling direction that was uh, labeled art and science. And, and by that art and science, which was really a moniker for marketing, the art is that throughout Cadillac's history, the styling or the art of the design was, was one of the most significant things about Cadillac. And the science, of course, is the new technologies. And uh, when I did the very edgy themes, um, I was looking a lot at contemporary architecture. I was looking at stereo equipment like Bang & Olsen, uh, industrial design things. And, and Cadillacs, to me, always had to have an edge. And where I got that from was actually my hero, Mr. Bill Mitchell, who, of course, ran design from 1959 through, I believe, 1977. And Bill always felt that Cadillacs should have creases. And he said that the creases were a form of elegance. And he used the parallel uh, of a freshly uh, freshly pressed tuxedo. And when I looked at my favorite I'll call it somewhat contemporary Cadillac, the 67 Eldorado. Mm. That car is the one that really inspired me uh, when I did the Evoke. The edginess, the vertical tail lamps, uh, the large wheel openings, uh, very different from the Cadillacs that we saw in 1996, 97, 98. Uh, So, when we made its debut at the auto show, it was our first opportunity to show this new design philosophy of art and science. And it was somewhat controversial. I mean, some people loved it. And fortunately for me, the people that loved it were my design colleagues from around the world. Uh, some people found it different and jarring. But when Auto Week, looked at all the cars that were shown at the 1999 Detroit Auto Show, they named the Evoque as best concept. Uh, the car was later invited to a automotive beauty uh, salon at, in Milan, and we were the only car, American car, invited uh, amongst the Bugattis and the Ferraris. So we felt pretty good about the reception that the design was receiving. So that then became the new design philosophy called art science. And honestly, if you look at today's uh, 2017 CTS or ATS or CTS, it's carry it. It has, it has lasted uh, through 2017. Uh, I know Cadillac uh, with the beautiful, uh, uh, concept car that they showed recently, they're, they're they're evolving it, which I certainly believe they should. But I I think I feel proud that the design team that worked with me uh, were able to set a new direction for Cadillac in 1999. That quite frankly uh, went went all the way to 2017. And that now the production version of the Evoke was the XLR, and right after Cadillac, they moved me into the performance division under Mark Royce, and Mark, once again, handpicked all the real performance-oriented engineers. Uh, He picked me because I'm an amateur race driver. I've been racing my Corvette now for 24 seasons in SCCA and Waterford Club Racing, and um, we were given the responsibility to true performance cars. And that's where the new V-Series uh, came about. Uh, I did the first-generation CTSV, XLRV, uh, STSV. We did the GXP Pontiacs. We did the Redline uh, Saturns, the one that even went to Bonneville at a new record. Uh, so to, to make the transition from Cadillac production cars 
the performance cars was fantastic for me. Uh, in addition, I was given the opportunity to do all the new SEMA cars, uh, which we always tried to do, uh, show people extremes of what they could do with their Corvette or their Camaro or their uh, uh, Chevrolet uh, Cavalier, Cobalt, etc. cetera. Uh, in addition to that, then, of course, the responsibilities were all the pace cars for the Indy 500, Daytona 500, Craftsman Truck Series, and the race cars. Uh, I worked on the first World Challenge CTS VR with Pratt Miller. And I also did, uh, secretly, uh, with Riley and Scott, uh, the Cadillac Le Mans car. Uh, oh, wow. And I was at Le Mans for three years that it raced, but... Cadillac found that Audi does this as a mission in life, and it takes train loads full of money. And quite frankly, it takes a lot of years' experience to become competitive at Le Mans. And they decided that that wasn't where they wanted to play. And as disheartened as I was when when we flew back from Le Mans, when they announced that was going to be the last year, I was the one that said, realistically, we should be racing what we sell, and that is, of course, the V-Series. And Pratt and Miller has done an amazing job. You know, I did the first CTS VRs with them, and they won the championships. Uh, and throughout the, the evolution, Pratt and Miller has won World Challenge with the Cadillac. So I think, I think Cadillac's racing the V-Series, Cadillac reshifting its focus with the V-Series on performance cars, uh, has made a tremendous difference. And, and I have to say, I went to the car and driver, cars and coffee, at the new M1 condo racetrack that's here in Pontiac, Michigan. And uh, they had 1,800 cars, 5,000 people. I drove in with my XLR V. And one of my best friends has a 950 horsepower CTSV, and right behind us, just by coincidence, were 25 Cadillac V Series cars. We parked in a big row. All the buyers, these V Series, and some of them were modified to like Brad's at 950 horsepower, all had their V shirts on. And what was really amazing was. Some of these buyers were in their late 20s, a lot of which were in their 30s. So to, to this group, Cadillac is cool again. So I have to admit, I'm proud of my maybe my small contribution in nudging Cadillac into changing their demographic with performance and style. And uh, that's been kind of the highlight of my career. I retired in 08, so, geez, it's been nine years now. But I have to admit, I miss GM a lot. I miss the business, but I'm still pretty much involved. You know, I've, I've been a judge at the Arizona Concours at the Biltmore for the last several years. I've been the chief judge at the Santa Fe Concours for the last few years. I judge eyes on design. I just judged the Italian happening at M1, and I'll be judging the Concours of America at uh, St. John's, at, uh, St. John's. Yeah. this, uh, this coming uh, July, I guess. Right, right. So right. it's been long-winded. I see, aren't you? Now you're probably <laughs> giving you no, 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 no. We're, we're actually... We're actually up against the clock, but that's good. But here's what I want to do, Kip. I want to get you back on the show because one of the things that I wanted to do is I wanted to talk a little bit about, and I'm glad you came on and glad you gave us a little history and background on yourself, but I want to talk a little bit about design, your thoughts on design, your thoughts on sure. you know the, the retro versus the new, kind of like what you kind of touched on a little bit. And, uh, and uh, again, it was really a pleasure having you on the show. Now, real quickly, because we only got like 30 seconds left, the Corvette, the mid-engine, was that the Astro Corvette that you were working on? No, it was called the two rotor. Two rotor, okay. The, the uncle or Wankel, I guess Americans say Wankel, mm-hmm. powered uh, rotary Corvette. That car has been uh, purchased by a big Corvette collector in England, Tom Falconer, I believe is his name. It's restored and it's one of one. Wow. So, well, Kip, well, cool. 
I want to thank you very much for coming on the show this evening. Definitely keep in touch. I'll probably see you. I don't know if I can make it to St. John's, but I probably will try to get out to Monterey, and I'm sure you'll be out of Monterey as well, right? Yeah, we might be there, but if you could make St. John's, I have to say it's it's come a long way since Meadowbrook, and, and, and I think, quite frankly, St. John's is right up there, uh, right behind, say, Public Beach. Amelia? Okay. Well, hey, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank my special guest this evening, Kip Wasenko. Former head of design for Cadillac and special vehicles. Kip, you take care, and uh, we'll see you at some of the uh, some of the events down the road in Monterey, perhaps. Okay. All right. Good talking to you, Robert. Thank you. I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio Cars. Don't forget, every Tuesday night, the most fascinating and legendary names in motorsports. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com. If you've missed any past shows, Nostalgic Radio Cars, the archive page. We'll see you at some of the car shows. In the meantime, everybody, stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. Telling tales out of school, but there's a fella in there who'll pay you ten dollars if you sing into his can. Downtown Dave. I'm not here to make a record, you dumb cracker. They broadcast me out on the radio. WTAN, Clearwater. FM 106.1. WCF, Dade City, Tampa Bay. WZHR, Zephyr Hills. FM 104.3. Listen.